My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Isn't that what the creative journey is? Isn't that what the artistic journey is? Is listening to those quiet, still voices that's leading us to make something. Hello and welcome everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. We are back continuing our conversation on craft and community, and I couldn't be more excited to introduce you to Zach Foster. Zach Foster is also at the John C. Campbell Folk School, so this makes a really great compliment to the episode that we heard last month um, with Allie Dudley. So Zach Foster is originally from the Winston-Salem area of North Carolina, but spent the past nearly 20 years in, in New York teaching and um, beginning to quilt. He's had a really interesting journey learning the art of quilting and um, shares with us how this craft has finally brought him back home to his roots in North Carolina. So Zach is the artist-in-residence at Olive's Porch, which is a new part of the John C. Campbell Folk School. And Zach is an incredible artist. He's done just remarkable things with his craft of quilting. But he's also done a really amazing job at engaging with and creating a, a space for a quilting community in ways that are, are new and yet at the same time kind of old. And he'll talk more about that um, as we go through this podcast. I do just want to kind of set up this podcast and give you an idea of what our day looked like because it was not a typical interview. So Zach came and visited Foxfire and while he was here, we showed him some of our historic quilts that are in our textile collection. So we have a collection of over 40 textiles, about half of which are quilts, and these are actually posted online as part of an online collection that I'll link on our website, but you can go and view several of the textiles, including the quilts that we were able to share with Zach. So part of this interview consists of us showing him the quilts and talking about some of the things that we're seeing and the history of those. And then we took time to ha sit down and have a formal or rather informal conversation about Zach's experiences and some of his thoughts on craft and community. Also present in this interview are Lexi, who is our current graduate student intern at Foxfire, as well as Robert, who is part of the marketing department at the Folk School. So I'm, I'm going to leave this to you because we spend quite a bit of time talking, but I hope you enjoy it. My name is Zach Foster. I'm a quilt maker from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I currently live in Brooklyn, uh, but I'm down here at the John C. Campbell Folk School as Olive's Porch first artist in residence. How did you go from Winston-Salem to Brooklyn to Brasstown? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your journey and where, um, where quilting fits in with all that. Mm -hmm. I left North Carolina in 2008 to move to New York. I was young and I was in love and my partner wanted to move up there. And so now I'm a little less of one and a little more of the other and I'm ready to come back home. You know, I'm ready to get back down south where the roots are because I found that when I got up to New York, I was more Southern than I'd ever been. 
you know, like when I was living down south, I didn't feel that connected. It took going away from home, you know, to really tap into that. And so one question I have about my own life is, would I have ever started quilting if I hadn't moved away from home? Because I picked that up in New York. I don't know. We'll never know. But I started quilting when I was up in New York. In fact, I just celebrated my 10-year anniversary of quilting. Um, made probably about 100 quilts since 2012. I've been a little busy. Yeah. That's amazing. And been, for most of that, I've been teaching in the public schools full-time as well. So, so why, why quilting? What, what took you from public schools to quilting? Yeah, well, you know, 2012 was that season of life when all your friends start having babies. And so I want to make them something they just couldn't buy off a shelf. But why quilts? Because I've done a lot of different things. As an artist, I've done painting, drawing, screen printing, etching. They're just different things. But why quilts? I think working with fabric feels like, it feels elemental to me, right? Like when you're working with fabric, your material already exists in front of you. Like, you know, painters have to mix paint. But as an artist, as a quilter, I just look and see what I got and how can I recombine that? And so I think there's something about the elemental part of working with fabric that I really find satisfying. You know, my friend Victoria says that when you're born, nobody puts a paintbrush right in your hand first thing, but they do wrap you up in clothing. And so we have this early exposure to textiles that I think lends us a certain intimacy with it. And because of that intimacy, for me, it's been a really lovely medium to explore. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience going from you know, making baby quilts for friends mm -hmm. to discovering the community of quilting or how you felt that you fit into that community or how you grew the community yourself? When I first started quilting, I feel like, I remember feeling like I was on the outside looking in because I hadn't grown up with any quilters. Nobody knew quilted. So I learned how to quilt like almost anybody learns anything anymore, which is YouTube and Instagram and that kind of stuff. And so I was just kind of learning in my bedroom in Brooklyn how to do this thing, how to make it all hold together. And then eventually as I began to become more and more forward and sharing more and more of my work, I began connecting with other quilters. The first quilter I ever met was my partner's mama in East Tennessee, um, who showed me how she, her preferred method for self-binding quilts and wrapping up the backing onto the front. That wasn't a method I was familiar with at the time. And I also remember that was my first exposure, my first intimate encounter with the beauty of the hand-sewn stitch. Because it was that first Thanksgiving, we went home. I was meeting the in-laws for the first time, terrified. And Mama, who had heard I was a quilter, took me by the hand, led me back to the linen closet and started pulling out, much like you were just a minute ago, one quilt after another from the closet. And she could run her finger down those seams and say, this was my sister Sue, this is my other sister, this was my mom. And she could read those stitches like signatures. And that was something at that point in my life, I didn't have enough experience or context, even though that was a thing that was possible. I mean, to me, stitches were stitches. But Mama showed me some magic in that moment that stuck with me. And so she would be, when we think about quilting community, she was the, the gatekeeper for me. She, she really opened the door and let me in, taught me a bunch of stuff. There was even a time when I came home from being out running an errand and she was sitting at the kitchen table sewing on my quilt. <laughs> I didn't give her permission to, but I don't mind either. Um, but yeah, so, so started connecting that way. 
And then just things kind of snowballed from there. So Instagram became more and more of a thing as time went on. I became more and more of a thing on Instagram as time went on. And so I started connecting with people that way. And now some of my best friends are people I met online, which has been really sweet. Friends like Heidi Parks and Luke Haynes who are out there doing some really interesting stuff with, with quilting. And then during the pandemic, many of us were just flailing for community one way or another. And I realized that 18 years of teaching in the public schools had made me a really good community organizer because every school year in the fall, I'd get a new crop of kids that didn't know each other and I had to build a community to do it quickly so we could get to work and learn together. And I saw a way where I could start bringing people together outside of the classroom in a way that we could do in the middle of a pandemic, which was online. And so I started something called the Quilty Nook, which is like a, a Facebook for quilters, textile artists, folks who are interested in exploring. And that's brought to date about 500 people together. It's been a really beautiful thing. And I think the thing that surprises me most about it is you can't police a community. I'm not interested in policing a community, but these folks are so nice, so kind, so supportive, so creative that it just, it's a joy to, to be a part of. We do online sewing circles, so folks get together and sit and stitch together. We have a book club. We just read The Golden Thread by Cassia St. Clair. We have workshops. And it's just, it's another way, like I've even heard of people taking like social media sabbaticals, but they're like, but I'll stay on the quilty nut, right? Because it doesn't feel like social media in a lot of ways, which is really sweet. So um, when I think about community, I think about how so many of us, when we think of quilting, it is the, the, the age old American is apple pie craft. And we get this vision of women primarily sitting around a quilt and frame out under the old branches of the oak tree in the front yard and having a quilt and bee. But about three or four months ago, I was in a room with a bunch of quilters on Zoom, about 100 quilters. And I said, y'all, I'm interested in having a real life quilting bee. Not one of these things that they're calling quilting bees, but really just kind of mail each other packages, you know. Real life quilting bee, we're all sitting around the quilting frame together. So, and I said, how many of y'all have been to a quilting bee before? Nobody in this room of 100 quilters had ever been to a real quilting bee. And that was a real moment of pivot for me because it helped me really internalize that moment, how quilting has gone from being a largely communal tradition to a largely isolated individual tradition. And not that traditionally quilting didn't have its alone moments as well. You know, many of the quilting, as far as I understand at least, a lot of the patchwork was done by one person or a couple people living in a house all together. But then the community came together to bring the quilts into fruition and really bring those layers together around the quilting frame. But now one person can do everything from start to finish. And I think in some ways that has generated a lot of production of quilts. People can now do things working on their own. They don't have to be beholden to other people's timetables. They don't have to be beholden to other people. A lot of folks I talk to on the Quilty Nook, they say they're the only, the only quilter they know. They don't know any other quilters. So how would they ever do anything if how would they ever have a quilt and be? They wouldn't know who to call. So it's nice that we have these machines that can do so much of the work for us. But then something else, of course, is getting lost, right? When I think of a quilting bee, I think of folks sitting around the table, folks sitting around the quilting frame, sewing, telling stories. There's probably some live music in the background somewhere. There's kids probably sitting up under the frame, watching the needles in the hands go in and out. You know there's going to be a meal later. 
It's an all-day affair. And so this is what I'm trying to organize for John C. Campbell. See if we can't make that happen. Yeah, that's something that came up in our conversation with Allie. We just kept talking about the sense of lineage and the sense of community. And I feel like that's becoming more and more common in conversations that I'm having about craft with different people that this piece of sharing is disappearing, especially when we can learn from something like YouTube or Instagram. But I'm really interested in how you've been able to leverage these digital platforms to recreate those bonds between people. And I think that was something that we saw as an outgrowth of the pandemic in many ways. But, you know, have you gotten feedback or do you have any experiences from people who've shared with you that maybe you've inspired them to reforge those in-person relationships? Well, that's a beautiful question to ask because for me, for the Quilting Nook to be a, as productive and beautiful and satisfying a project as it can be, it can't just end up as another thing on the internet. I wanted to roll on and have another life beyond it. And so what, what I'm starting to see in the last couple of months, and this is really cool, is folks in the nook are getting together, right? Like there's now, I guess we've reached kind of a critical mass that there's enough folks in the nook in different cities or different places. They are able to meet up to go fabric shopping or thrift shopping or just even have a cup of coffee. And now folks are starting to post pictures of themselves meeting with other people in real life. And I just think that to me is the ultimate goal, right? Is how can we, in a time when we feel perhaps more isolated than ever, reconnect with craft and community in more than just the digital space. Like we just, we are human beings of flesh and blood. We exist in the physical plane. We cannot live on the internet. That is not our home. And so if we can find a way to get beyond that, use the internet as a tool that it is, to reconnect to one another. That to me seems like a, a noble goal. And I certainly have my own thoughts about this, but I'm curious to hear what you think. What do you see as being the cultural pieces that are missing as we have migrated away from a tactile world to a digital world? What ultimately do you think these community connections can bring to our contemporary culture? I think when we moved away from understanding craft and being active participants in craft ourselves, we have acquired a kind of helplessness and a kind of uh, amnesia to the origin of the objects in our lives, right? We can no longer look at a basket and even fathom how it was woven together. It's just something we bought from the store made by human hands, because my understanding is that there's no basket-making machines out there in the world. They haven't figured that out yet. This basket might have been made in China, but now here it is in your hands, and we can't fathom how it was made. We can't fathom how it got from, from there to here. We just know that it's here. And I think that amnesia makes us helpless in a lot of ways, because if we need a basket, if we need a container, well, I must go to the store and give them my money to get this thing. But maybe you can go get some honeysuckle vine out of your backyard and just whip one up real fast, <laughs> real fast. So I like the sense of, I think one of the things I love most about craft and making is being able to see through an object into the past and tapping into those traditions to understand how it came to be here today in my life. That's one thing. Additionally, 
if the craft that you're practicing has a communal element to it, like we're talking about the quilting bee, you might find yourself sitting across a quilt frame from somebody that you don't necessarily like or agree with, but you're going to have to talk to them. You're going to have to find a way to make it work because you want your quilt quilted. You're going to have to be nice to them. And nowadays it's so easy just to block somebody, unfollow somebody, thus creating these, these bubbles that we all live in. We all live in one bubble or another. And so I think craft could give us the skills that we need and the paths that we need to remain connected to one another. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think we all lose a sense of what value objects have. And I think, you know, a lot of us in this craft community really, you know, begrudge this like throwaway mentality. Um, it seems to, you know, invade every aspect of our life, but because the word disposable doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. You know, we just, everything's controlled Z, right? We just undo or throw away That's everything, right. right? That's right. So I think craft brings a lot of meaning and responsibility and understanding that what you do matters mm -hmm. and how you connect with others matters. Do you feel that craft is or is not unique here in this region? For some reason, my mind's making this connection with, uh, there's some of those cove forests in the Smoky Mountains, you know, that that there are certain kinds of salamanders that just live in these certain coves, right? That particular species isn't found anywhere else. And I'm sure there's an algae in there somewhere. I think it's like what we were saying earlier, and I loved the way that Lexi put it, that it's dialects, you know, it's these little communities, but there's such a depth of experience that's continued, you know, a historic experience that really has been preserved in ways that I think are rare to find in other places where maybe there's more mobility and migration. And I think those stories get carried forth in those materials, which is interesting. But speaking of preserving traditions, one thing I saw on your website that made me really excited <laughs> was you um, do burial quilts. Oh, yeah. Can you tell me how you, yeah. why you decided to yeah. start doing that? And um, have you had success sharing that with people? Well, for several years, I've worked in memory quilts. So just to draw a distinction, you know, memory quilts are often nine times out of 10, someone passes away and we're left with a closet full of clothes that we don't know what to do with. And you don't want to just throw them away because you love the person, you know? So what do you do with all this stuff? And so that's where memory quilts come in. And so a lot of times people will reach out to me, they'll say, I've got XYZ shirts or pants or whatnot. What can you do with them? So we talk about some ideas. A large part of that process is also the storytelling process, I find. Because um, it seems like most times when people reach out to me to commission a memory quilt, it's about two years or so after the person's passed away. And I think there must be a stage of grief in there somewhere where it feels like people are open to working with, doing that kind of work, right? And I also feel like there's something to be said for enough time has passed since your loved one passed away that I'm sure it feels like the rest of the world's probably moved on in a lot of ways, but you still got stories you want to tell. This person still feels very special to you. So now here I come, I'm fresh years. I don't know nothing. You know, you just tell me all the stories you want to tell me or not. Sometimes people don't want to talk about it, but most people do. And so I found that to be a really satisfying way of working. Um, I love hearing the stories, then kind of collecting them, stirring them around and then pouring out a quilt. You know, that's something that they see their loved one in. It's really special to me. 
So I've been doing that. That's the background. The other piece of the background you need to know is about ooh, 20 years ago, I was in college. And I heard this story on the radio about a woman who had passed away rather unexpectedly. But her friends knew that her last wishes were to take the quilt off her bed, roll up her body, put it in the back of the pickup truck, drive out to the woods and bury her in the woods. And I remember when I heard this on the radio, I was 20 years old. I was not thinking about my own, my own mortality. But I remember thinking, well, one, I remember thinking, oh, you mean I don't have to be buried in a casket? Which suddenly felt like a very alien thing to me, to be buried in a box. It seemed like the world's worst idea, in my personal opinion. And that I could be buried in something like a quilt, something soft and colorful. And that moment sat deep somewhere in my psyche and just germinated for about 20 years. And then it came out in a time when folks, I think, are really eager for alternative burial practices for a number of reasons. One, we're becoming increasingly conscious of our role in this ecosystem, this planet that we're living in. We realize that we are just a link in a cycle. These elements that make up my body are just on loan to me, and it is, it is, it is on me to give them back to the world. Burial quilts let us do that. I also think because of everything the world's been through the last couple years, and because especially in the early days of the pandemic, folks couldn't get together the same way they could for the funerals and for these ceremonies that exist for a reason, right? We need to go through certain processes of grieving to, to really to, to honor the loss that we're experiencing. And so I think all of this is, is coming together at a time now in my creative path that leads me to want to work with people in creating their, their burial quilts. And so you could, the idea, the vision is that we would figure out what kind of energy you want this quilt to have, what kind of look, what kind of feel. They could contribute significant clothing. Maybe they would give me clothes from when they were kids or clothes when their kids were kids or whoever it may be, something that felt special to them. We could put that in the quilt. You make it now so you can use it on your bed, you can use it on the couch. Can't do that with a coffin. And then you hopefully have that thing for years and years and years. And then when the day comes, you got that thing ready, right? And it'll wrap you up just like it has wrapped you up every night that you've curled up in it. And I'll take you to the ground. And it's, for me, it's been a source of peace. I've got my own burial quilt, halfway made. And it sits folded up in the corner of my apartment in, the, in Brooklyn. And I wake up in the morning, I look over there in the corner, and I just say, oh boy, one of these days, I'm gonna need you, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna need you. Because it's not quilted yet, I can't use it, it's just a quilt top. But the idea is that it would be used every day. And this particular quilt, you know, I rarely have a pattern in mind when I start my quilts, it's just improv. And the way this one was coming together, turns out to have these big red sevens just all over, just a repeating motif. And so I call it my, my jackpot quilt. Like I've been playing the slots and just got lucky. And so I talk to jackpot sometimes and tell jackpot little stories. And a lot of times because this quilt is unquilted, I can put it up on my design wall in the studio, eat-in kitchen of my apartment. I can put it up on the wall so it forms a nice backdrop if I got some like video thing to do or documentary thing to do. 
and there was a time when a guy was coming over to film a, a documentary and I was putting jackpot up on the wall and I was telling him, okay, you got to look your best. Here comes so-and-so. Gonna, you're going to be in the background. And I just find myself telling all these little daily stories to this quilt. And it is becoming for me like a companion that will accompany me from this time in my life when my own mortality seems far away and down the road, hopefully, all the way down that path to the last day. And I don't know much about that last day. But I got that one thing figured out, hopefully. And that brings me a little bit of peace. I find it remarkable because it really recenters textiles in our lives in a way that was done for thousands of years. I mean, people used to weave their own shrouds and a shroud it would take years, maybe decades to weave your shroud. And I just love that you're incorporating this into your, your daily life and it really it does become this piece of you, but it also becomes this other piece of the story, right? Well, one of the things that, one of the goals I have in life is to empower other people to realize what they have in their control. And the funeral business, the way it exists now, is an industry, but it hasn't always been an industry. It just goes back to the Civil War when so many young people died at the same time we didn't know what to do with their bodies, you know? Before that, Mom, grandma, and aunts most often were the ones taking care of the body and getting it ready for burial and all that. I'm not saying we got to go back to those days necessarily, but we also don't need to be spending thousands of dollars, in my opinion, on a big fancy box that you're just going to see for a couple of days and it's going to get put on the ground. You know? So I like thinking of ways of decentralizing industry and decentralizing economy and recentering it in our homes and in our workspaces, and in our communities. That's the root of the word economy. Yes, it is. Switching gears a bit, I'm curious about your experiences as a male quilter. Mm. Have you found that that's been something that you're conscious of in your quilting communities, or have you been welcomed as any other quilter? Are there a, are there a lot of other male quilters? I know quilting's changed a lot, but like you were saying earlier, a lot of people immediately think of grandma's sitting out under the oak tree, so. I am 100% certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I've probably gotten more attention for my work because I am a male in the quilting world. I don't think I'm doing the best work out there, but because I'm a little bit niche this way, I guess, I, I get probably some undue attention. It's, there are hashtags out there, like, you know, male quilters and stuff like that. That has always kind of, that's, that's never fit me and how I view myself. You know, I'm not interested in carving out quilts made by males as something different from the tradition of quilts made by often females. You know? So I'm sure that my, my gender has played a large role in the attention that I've gotten, but I don't actively try to cultivate it. You know, I try to, as much as I can, just just let it be there, let it be what it is, but I don't try to market it that way. There are several women interviewed by Foxfire who told the Foxfire students that they made sure that their grandsons knew how to quilt. And so, I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's important. I think yeah. it should be done equally. And, and I, love, I love that you're preserving so much of the tradition. Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking there was an exhibit at the Folk Art Museum in New York a few years ago about male quilters specifically. Because especially after the Revolutionary War and after the Civil War, there were 
programs, and I use the word loosely, but there were, there were concerted efforts for soldiers that had been wounded in battle and were bedridden while they were recuperating to sit and sew. And they would cut up old tattered uniforms and things like that. And so we, we have traditions that we can tap into and we don't have to go back very far. Right? They exist. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to break down those stereotypes because we love to just divide things into easy camps. And especially in Appalachia, that just wasn't true because you needed so much man, that person power <laughs> to do everything. You know, I mean, children, boys and girls, age of four would be carding wool to help them up, you know, and you did boys and girls would be spending with mom, right? So um, I just think it's important that people are aware that it's historic for a lot of these traditions to be shared by both genders. Well, and that's one of the things that stands out to me about the folk school is that it's a community where everybody's interested in making, right? And it's not like there's male making and female making. It doesn't feel that way at the folk school, right? Like you'll sit around, you'll see someone who you know does woodwork and sitting there knitting because it's all just using your own hands to create what you need. That's it. And that's a beautiful thing. I couldn't agree more. So I have to ask, I saw that you made a quilt for the Met Gala. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. So tell me about that mm -hmm. and um, how that came about. But I'm especially interested in why, but also like how you took that assignment and how you responded, like what, what did you create in response to that assignment and why? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So I got months ago a random text from some, some account I don't follow on Instagram and it had a blurry little poorly lit picture of an old puff quilt or a biscuit quilt as it's sometimes called. And they said, can you remake this? No hi, no nothing, just can you remake this? And it was, um, pretty far outside of my typical scope. So I wrote back saying, no, but I know somebody who did just make a puff quilt. I can recommend if you want. And they said, that would be great because it's for the Met. And I said, hold on a second. Maybe we should talk. <laughs> and so the idea was that I was going to remake that puff quilt. Right, that was the idea. But time passed and time passed and time passed. And the Met Gala got closer and closer. And so we ended up keeping the original quilt which they've tracked down the maker, which does not often happen with anonymous quilts, but it got high profile enough that the great granddaughter of the maker recognized it and even had pictures of the quilt on the bed itself. And they had just recently had to get rid of some of great grandma's quilts because, you know, sometimes you just have too many. And so they'd given them to a thrift store in the LA area, which is where the designer who reached out to me found it. So there's a constellation of things that line up to make me think we really have found the, the provenance of this quilt, which is really sweet. So we kept that intact, which I love. And then he asked me, the designer asked me, to create a back for it. Because the idea was for ASAP Rocky when he was, he would arrive to the red carpet, which is really a white carpet. He would arrive all bundled up in this quilt. So you'd see the puff, the vintage original side of the quilt on the outside. He would get to the top of the stairs. He would open up his arms, revealing the interior or the back side of the quilt. And then it would drop on the ground. And so he wanted that moment to be a dramatic moment. And so he sent me a lot of old red clothes that he had. I understand some of them were from his personal wardrobe. Some was from his father's. I imagine there were also thrifted items in there as well. And uh, he said, I just want you to go crazy with it. 
So very little direction. So I was actually happy that we had come to a point where there was not enough time left to remake this quilt because that was just such a, that would just been a technical job. You know, so now here we are back in the creative realm and I got to just create this whole whirlwind of a back of a quilt. And it kind of looks like for folks that haven't seen it, like imagine, you know, you're in, you're, you're getting ready for, you're in high school, right? And you're getting ready for, for school in the morning. You try on four or five different outfits. I don't know if that rings any bells out there. And you don't have time because you're already late for school to put everything back neatly in the drawers or on the hanger. So you just throw them on the ground. It kind of feels like that. All these clothes just strewn. Like I didn't even cut them up or anything. They're just whole pieces of clothing sewn down in a mess on the back of this quilt. And what I think is so stunning about the color choice, and I'm assuming this was intentional on the designer's half, behalf, is that when ASAP Rocky opened up that quilt and dropped it, all of a sudden what was an incredible, entirely white space, I'm talking about the carpet now, but maybe not just the carpet, what was a mostly white space had a little patch of red, big old piece of square red carpet. And it's like ASAP Rocky in that moment made his own red carpet. And I think there's something to be said about the democratizing nature of quilts, how quilts can be so accessible and have been so accessible in so many different communities. He took that symbol and then created it for himself out of the white carpet of this elite environment, his own little patch of red turf. And I think that was a really beautiful moment. And I will say, just between us, that Rihanna is now pregnant. You do the date and then we'll see if the quilt has anything to do with it. Quilts have magical powers. We'll find out. You can edit all that out. <laughs> I can't edit out that you said quilts have magical powers. That's why I put it in there. <laughs> I mean, that's like, man. So, um, so, okay, so I have this friend who works for Blue Ridge Public Radio. Mm -hmm. And she, I don't do TikTok, but she does. Mm -hmm. And she knows that I craft. So apparently right now the thing is to make clothes out of vintage quilts. Mm. You heard about this? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm curious what your take on that is. Because I know you use a lot of vintage clothes mm -hmm. for different projects. Mm -hmm. You're talking about using quilts to make clothes, right? Cut up quilts to make clothes? Just maybe more generally. Like, how mm -hmm. do you feel about people, whether they're artists like yourself or if they're people making clothes, taking vintage quilts and cutting them up? I tend to be more in the camp of what my buddy Luke Haynes said. is like, there are many ways to love a quilt. There are many ways to respect a quilt. I'm also aware that there is more stuff produced on this planet every day. We, I mean, it's just piling up. So we got to find ways to deal with our levels of consumption. So I think there is space in the quilt world for folks who love quilts, to use them to make clothes and other objects. Where I have a point of hesitation is when people don't love quilts and they just want a certain look. And so they, they go buy, because they have access to these coffers of money, some really beautiful old quilts and just cut them up to sell to the highest dollar, to the highest bidder. That's when it feels a little dirty to me. But if you love quilts and you love them so much you just want to wear them on your body, I think that's beautiful. Because what else are you gonna do with them? That's well put. Why do you personally use vintage quilts? So this is something I've just started doing a little bit recently with this residency at the folk school. 
And I did that because the project I'm working on there, I'm calling it the Homecoming series. So they're autobiographical quilts. Three quilts. The first one is the excitement of leaving home 2008 and going to the bright lights big city. Middle quilt is that moment where things start to shift and I began to feel a little bit of lonesomeness, missing home, nostalgia, whatever you want to call it. And the last, the third piece is the community quilt. It's the coming home quilt. And I wanted to bring some old quilt tops with me when I came down because the idea was to, while I'm telling my own story through these quilts that has some very concrete details, 2008, Winston-Salem, New York, very concrete and specific details, I'm not the only one, <clears throat> I'm not the only one who has made similar choices or walked down a similar path. And by working with quilt tops. I feel like I'm tapping into other people's stories. I feel like it's treating it almost like a, in a lot of ways, a common human experience that we have a relationship to home and we have a relationship to people and to place. I'm also aware that, and this is, some, this is a question I'm living with at the moment, so when I get to the end of this, don't expect an answer, I don't have one. But I'm working in a place called Cherokee County. North Carolina. Doing a project on my connections with home. And I am somebody who has been able to have the resource to choose to leave home, choose to come back. I've been able to flit up and down the East Coast until I wanted to come home. This is all very nice. But that's not the case for everybody that's ever called Cherokee County home, you know? There are folks now for whom this is the homeland. They're now their descendants are living in the middle of our country, hundreds of miles away. And one thing that's really st struck me in the middle of working on this project and driving to East Tennessee, especially to see family, is seeing all these Department of Transportation official signs, you know, on the side of the road for Trail of Tears. And to see these signs on the side of a four-lane road where you got a Walmart on one side and an Arby's on the other, I mean, it's just, it's, the history is right there. The history is still the present. And so I don't know how all of that is going to work into the, my homecoming project, and it might not. Maybe that's a whole separate project. But I feel that by working with quilts that already are objects, I should say, working with objects that have a history, I'm tapping into certain stories and certain questions about the past that I want to stay connected to. With my research right now, it's looking at, I'm picking out specific patterns mm -hmm. that have been used for centuries, decades, passed down through families. And like where I got the dialects from, it, like comment is like an article about regionalism and cult making where each pattern has a different name has 20 different names, but they all have different staples. And I was wondering, because looking through your quilts, and like you said, with the improv improvisation and mm -hmm. all that stuff, like how, I guess, was it like a conscious decision to kind of break away from the traditional quilt pattern pattern, like to where it's blocks and everything's squared, everything's very meticulous, um, and kind of, have more of a kind of a feel of the moment 
kind of creation aspect to it? Like, was it a conscious kind of turn or mm -hmm. did it just happen? Now, that, that seems like an artistic question, but it's really a deeply personal question. I'm glad you asked it. I, I feel like, so I'm a Virgo, sun sign. And I feel that I've, for a long time, I've been very good at making things perfect. That's what Virgos are good at, making things perfect, doing things by the book. But I think early on in my quilt making, so 10 years ago, there was something inside of me that said that there's more than just doing things perfect. There's more than just reproducing pattern. I didn't know what that was yet. At some point in that chapter of my life, I ran into the quilts of G's Bend that um, while they weren't the only improvers, they're definitely the best well-known, right? And so seeing how free they were able to be with their, with their composition opened up something in me. So now over the course of the last decade of quilt making, I've gone from my sun sign Virgo to more my moon sign Aquarius. And so I'm, I'm doing a little more dreaming these days than I was 10 years ago. And so I feel that, isn't that what the creative journey is? Isn't that what the artistic journey is? Is listening to those quiet, still voices that's leading us to make something and how those voices want it to be made. Because it seems like they know somehow. They'll get you somewhere. Because I'm very happy where I've ended up now at this point in my life. 20 years in the classroom, but now I'm full-time artist, full-time quilt maker. Mm -hmm. Folks back in my old school are teaching class right now, but I'm sitting here with y'all at Foxfire. I can't imagine anything better. So your question was a good one. It's about listening to those little voices. There was something about, I love those old traditional pattern quilts, but I needed for me something else. And so I kept looking. It's so interesting. I'm a Virgo moon, so Sagittarius sun, but um, Virgo moon. So it's like, I never really realized how that's, it's something about the meticulousness in the quilts. And that's kind of what draws me even though in my own artistic stuff, I'm a little bit more freer, a little bit more mixing everything together. But then it's just watching my mom, my grandma, both my grandmothers being so exactly precise with putting their blocks together. It's kind of like you see something that you're just not used to and you're just like, I just want to go play with that yeah. for a little bit, play with that 100%. math in it. 100%. I mean, Quilt patterns make beautiful quilts. There's a reason that so many patterns have become iconic and passed down because they just visually are very effective. You know? mm -hmm. And then if you tie them into memories of mom and grandma, even more power. Mm -hmm. you know? Makes a lot of sense. I know you mentioned you have a book club. Is there anything we should be reading? Mm. Anything that like you're like, yes, this is a book that makers need to read. I got one for you. The sculptor Ann Truitt kept journals for years. And she published one of her journals in a, in a volume called Daybook. I guess she called them Daybook, not journals. But Ann Truitt was known for making these human-sized statues, so five or six feet tall, four-sided columns out of wood that she would just paint in solid bands of color. That was what she was best known for. And when I read about her work, I'm like, oh, there's a connection to quilting, but there's also a connection for anybody who thinks about making stuff. Because somebody asked Ann Truett once, why do you work in wood, not metal, not glass, not stone? 
She says, what I like about wood is that it lasts just about as long as a human does. And I think quilts, well used and well loved, you can say the exact same thing about. So there's something, she, she's getting at the connection between our, the lives that we live and how we spend our time on this planet and the things that we make that are somehow all very neatly tied up for her. And so when I think about Anne Truitt, she has a way of talking about not only her own work, but making in general, that just, she has several turns of phrases that I find myself using in conversation every day. And I'll give you one more. That is, she knows that she's seeing good art when she feels the spontaneous rise in her being. And I love that because I, I get that. I can feel, well, I just lean forward in my chair for folks who are listening, <laughs> right? Like I, I get the sense of like when you see something, you, you just know something good when you see it. You feel that lightness suddenly take over your being. So Andrew knows what she's talking about. So anybody who's looking to put words to the process, I would encourage you to read Andrew's day book. Awesome. Next on my list is going to be Aunt Airy. I can't wait to read that. You've got a good copy over there. From everything you've been telling me about her. There's something about the way that the stories were shared here you know, no matter who it was, that you just, like Aunt Ari, you just feel like you know them. Mm -hmm. And they slip into conversation, and you start talking about them, and it's hard to remember that you've never actually met them. <laughs> but I think that's just, I don't know, I think that's a piece of the culture here and the way that the community is built, and I think that's prevalent in the things that are made and the stories that are shared. Um, so I'm just thrilled that you're here carrying on your little piece of that. And if people want to see your work, where can they do that? They can go to ZachFoster.com. That's Z-A-K, ZachFoster.com. They can find me on Instagram, ZachFoster.Quilts. Two best ways. Thank you so much to the, for listening today. If you're interested in learning more about Zach's work, head to our website. That's www.boxfire.org. If you scroll to the bottom of the homepage, you'll see a couple of little snippets for our blog posts. The one on the far left should be the most recent podcast post. If not, you can head over to our search bar and just um, search for Zach Foster's name. And that should pull up the blog post that accompanies today's podcast. On that post, you'll be able to find links to Zach's website where he has amazing pictures and um, some articles about the work he's done previously. I'll also link the folk school so that you can explore opportunities there if you're interested in learning some crafts yourself. And I will make sure to link Zach's Instagram page where you can follow along as he goes through his uh, residency at the folk school. And if you love Foxfire as much as we do, please consider joining our membership program. We have an awesome membership program that includes all different kinds of levels suited for your needs, whether you're interested in visiting as an individual, you want to bring your whole family, or if you don't live nearby, you can join as a digital member. That gives you access to an entire archive of digitized magazines from Foxfire, as well as a special YouTube content including wood stove cooking classes and archival videos and we send out special digital newsletters that will um, alert you of new offerings for our digital members you can head over to our website and that's www.boxfire.org membership to learn more thank you so much for your continued support leave us a review subscribe like share with a friend do all those wonderful things that help us get to more people 
it goes directly back to supporting our mission of preserving and promoting the history and culture of Southern Appalachia. Thank you all so much. And we'll talk to you next time. If you don't like that, you can throw it away.